make embarrass me any further. It's fine. I don't have all the answers on on all of this, and I've admitted that to you already. I I think uh, the best I can offer to you on some of these questions is give you an approach to answer them at times, but some of these main principles are the ones we're applying in covenant theology and trying to work out the details and the exceptions in light of the rest of Scripture. Uh, but, but just uh, two, two things, one in passing. When you think about the Lord's Supper, the Lord Jesus most clearly aligns the Lord's Supper with the covenant when he says, this is my blood of the covenant. And if you'd like to read a passage that is most illuminating for that statement of Jesus, go to Exodus 24, because that's almost what Jesus is quoting there. He adds one word, but otherwise it's the inauguration of the Mosaic Covenant when Moses says, this is the blood of the covenant. And afterwards, he sprinkles it on the people, and afterwards the elders, symbolizing the whole community, ascend to the mountain to commune with the Lord at meal and it says they were not stricken dead. So read Exodus 24 sometime as preparation for the Lord's Supper because Jesus alludes most clearly to that passage when he says of the cup of the new covenant, this is my blood of the covenant. And there are other passages of course connecting the Lord's Supper to covenant but this is a you know, in Hebrews and elsewhere. But it's, uh, it's very edifying to see that connection with Exodus 24. But another passage I would like to spend just a little more time on in connection to baptism, to think about this character of what God is doing in baptism. You can also describe what's happening in baptism as God placing his name on the person being baptized. We often think about baptism, we think about the water and spend a lot of time discussing uh, what kind of water we should use and you know how much and all this. Uh, and, and of course the water is essential to baptism and we should know how to rightly administer it. So these are important questions. But I'd also like you to reflect upon how the name in baptism is also important uh, equally because there's a reference in James that I think when you understand it and read it carefully is actually referring to baptism and interpreting it and I'd like you to look at James 2.7 and I'm going to uh, look at the translation with you James 2.7 now James has been talking about the uh, favoritism in the community. He's been telling them most pointedly that they, they uh, dishonor the Lord. Those who have put their faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, verse 1 of chapter 2 of James. And he says in, as a conclusion of this, when you show favoritism, verse 7, do they not baptize, I'm sorry, do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? That's the New American Standard uh, regular text. Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Unfortunately, that's not a good translation at all and not even nearly accurate. 
Fortunately, in the margin, they have the actual reading of the text. Verse 7, margin in my version of the New American Standard is, Do they not blaspheme the fair name which has been called upon you? Now, that's the only way to translate this phrase, actually. And it's a phrase found frequently in the Old Testament scriptures. And once you have a phrase like this used in the Old Testament scriptures, particularly the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's exactly the same phrase used uh, many times, dozens of times in the Old Testament, with a clear understanding of what that means. And we can translate that, do they not blaspheme the fair name which has been invoked upon you? Now, doesn't that suggest Matthew 28, baptize them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? The name, you see. You're baptizing them into the name. You're being baptized into Christ by being baptized into his name, but we're being baptized into the Holy Spirit as well and into God the Father. The full name of God is used in our baptismal formula, rightly so. And I think James is alluding to that. He's saying, when you show favoritism in your community, do you not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been baptized, which has been invoked upon you, and you now are known by this name. This name has been put upon you. It's interesting that this same phrase is found in uh, church fathers, and they refer to this uh, in connection with baptism. But also, you can look... Uh, with you don't have to you may want to just copy this down Second Chronicles 6.33 this phrase is also used then this is a prayer of uh, Solomon at the temple then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your own people Israel and may know that this house I have built bears your name that's the NIV but literally it says, uh, because your name has been invoked upon this house. You see, the house bears the name of the Lord. It has been invoked upon the house. It has been called upon the house. Amos 9.12 So that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, the name, all the nations upon whom my name has been evo- invoked is the phrase. Jeremiah 15:16 When your words came I ate them they were my joy my heart's delight for your name has been invoked upon me O Lord God almighty you see the name has been invoked on him in his circumcision he is a child of the covenant he is one who bears the name of the Lord God almighty in his uh, receiving the sacramental sign and seal but also in 2 Chronicles 7 When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague upon my people, if my people who are called by my name, my name has been invoked upon them, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. Notice, the temple is consecrated and bears the name of the Lord. In other words, this is his temple where he himself dwells. 
my eyes and my heart will always be there. And, of course, my people upon whom my name has been invoked. Now, when else was the name of God invoked upon the people of God? When is it invoked upon you? In baptism, but in the benediction. Listen to uh, the original benediction given to Aaron in Numbers 6, 23 to 20, uh, Numbers 6, 23 to 26. Tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Now the Lord interprets what that is. So they shall put my name on the Israelites. The name of God has been invoked upon the Israelites in that benediction, and I will bless them. Isn't that wonderful? You see, you bear the name of the Lord now. This is why we call ourselves Christians. Maybe we could think of a Trinitarian name as well, but this is, this is adequate for now. But you see, we bear the name of our Lord, our covenant Lord. It's a way of, of putting that seal and authentication on us. And I think James is referring to baptism because we baptize into the triune name and bear that name now. So this is a child upon whom the Lord's name has been invoked and, and he bears that name now. God has placed his seal and authentication on them. So that really you see sinning, blaspheming here, or sinning is blaspheming the fair name into which we've been baptized. So this is... Uh, just a little insight into that particular verse in James, but I think it also helps us to see further the Old Testament uh, uh, connections with baptism and part of what it means, particularly focusing upon the name. So there are other things to say about all these things. I've just highlighted a few that perhaps you hadn't thought about before uh, in connection with covenant. There are many, many more things to say about uh, the sacraments uh, in general, and but I've I've just tried to highlight a few things in connection with covenant. Okay, question and answer. Go ahead. I'm ready. Up, oh, time's up. No, I, I'm glad to, to take further questions. You're stunned. You're thinking, how can I pack six kids, tie two of them up with bungee cards, and <laughs> get them on top of the van? Rollin. Uh, Jeremiah 31, it says that the new covenant is set by the heavenly union so it is, and I'll write my laws on their hearts. Um, now, I was thinking this is really good, but the discovery of the court of distinction between that. Yes. Yes. Yeah, the question is the distinction between Jeremiah 31, the law written on the heart of the recipient of the new covenant, distinguished from the law written on the heart of the Gentile in general in creation. And that is the difference. 
the Gentile is a creature made in the image of God and bears the impress of God's law by being a creature made in his image. And the, uh, the, as you point out, Paul's uh, statement is actually they carry the effect of the law, the work of the law, ergon, um, but it's, you can translate that, the effect of the law written on their heart. In other words, he's talking about conscience. That's where the effect of it is. So their conscience alternately accusing or excusing them on the day of judgment. And that is the effect of the law. So they don't bear it in that they will now do it, which is what Jeremiah is saying. Jeremiah is really be taken with the parallel in Ezekiel. And I, I, I read something from uh, Turretin interpreting those two, which I thought a very fine quote, that the new covenant uh, comes to us with the, require, the same requirement of keeping God's law but along with the guarantee that we will because of the increased activity of the Holy Spirit and the uh, stripping away of the, of the uh, works element in the mosaic in the typological theocratic sphere that he is going to bring it into effect so that it will be uh, a covenant focusing specifically on election, of course, administering to all the people who are non-elect as well. But I, th- I simply think he means it's going to be uh, the fulfillment, it's going to be seen as more spiritual. There is that distinction in our, our confessional standards point that out. It's, it comes to us in greater simplicity and spirituality because it's not coming to us overburdened with types and shadows which can uh, deflect us from the faith element and the focus on his fulfillment. So there is development in the New Covenant and just because of time we couldn't talk about it all. There is this development but it's not a development which makes it so entirely new that there's no continuity. And that's, that's what we do in covenant theology. The continuity is appreciated along with a way of explaining the discontinuity without you know, erupting the, the uh, unity of Scripture on these things. Alan? What would be the uh, continuity and discontinuity between the covenant? They... The question is, what's the continuity discontinuity between the baptism and the Lord's Supper? The same covenant is involved. Uh, baptism is a sacrament of initiation, and the Lord's Supper is a sacrament of uh, nourishment of faith. And to get into that more would take means getting into it more from Scripture and showing that. But it is it is interpreted as. As I understand the Lord's Supper, it is bringing together all the sacramental elements, all the sacrificial elements of the Old Covenant, as well as um, particularly that association with Exodus uh, 24, showing the cleansing aspect uh, and the, as well as the uh, mutual communion with the Lord through faith, 1 Corinthians 10. I mean, we just have to get into all that to explain it. But that's, the, that's where they're distinct. 
they're, the continuity is they're, they're sacraments of the same covenant. I don't know how to express it otherwise. But one is initiatory, like circumcision, and the Lord's Supper is nourishment, but particularly nourishment of faith and communing on him, as well as proclaiming his death until he comes, etc. One, uh, there is a, a interesting treatment of the Lord's Supper in uh, Herman Ritterboss, if you ever run across his book, Coming of the Kingdom. He talks about uh, the Lord's Supper in light of some of these issues, including covenant. But I haven't read enough on, uh, you know, to, well, I should put it, I haven't read enough modern authors on this. I've been reading more our classical theologians, and they're not easy to find. But that is, a, that is something you'll find in Olivianus in this book. This uh, book on, uh, by Lyle Birma, German Calvinism, on the, on the Lord's Supper in particular, that chapter is very helpful on this point. Thank you. In the covenant of redemption, what's the reward for successful completion of Christ, the Son of God's successful uh, fulfilling of the covenant stipulations? And the answer is Psalm 2. I will give you the nations as your inheritance. Notice inheritance, ally with covenant. Uh, and it's the decree of the Lord. Uh, Pastor Keller pointed that out earlier. Very helpful. Um, this is his reward is his people you Psalm, or excuse me Isaiah 53 you have the same thing his heritage will be a people and as well as the glory I think I think you have to read uh, John 17 the high priestly prayer of Christ that the glory he had with the father from before the world was is also what he asks for as a result of his fulfilling the task. It's a reward for fulfilling the task the Father has given him. Because I have fulfilled that task, now give me the, the glory I had with you before the world was, before the foundation of the world. So I, I think it is all of his divine glory restored, we could say. As, but we also have to think of it as, as the incarnate Christ receiving that glory, Boy, you'd want to connect it with Romans 1.4. I mean, you could, you could think of really everything said about Christ in his exaltation. But particularly the task involved purchasing a people. And I think he's given the people as his inheritance, which is, isn't that glory? I mean, we are his, his, his prized possession, but a prized possession that he bought. And of course, First Peter, you know, we were purchased by precious blood. So that I, it, it's hard to restrict 
restrict that to reward. You could almost just say everything. <laughs> but I think the focus would be on his exaltation glory as well as the people possessed. See, he, he has purchased a right to us now, judicially, by fulfilling all righteousness. And R Romans 3, God demonstrating his own righteousness in that he passed over sins previously committed, but now he has shown the judicial basis of that, that he is just and the justifier of the one who believes in Christ. He maintains his own strict justice. And you all know 1 John 1, 9. Isn't that a marvelous passage? Every place I preach, you know, and I give the assurance of pardon, I just gravitate back to 1 John 1, 9. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. See, you could even claim God's justice to forgive you when you believe. God, if you are just, you will forgive me. What a claim, you know. But, but God says he is faithful and just to forgive us. It's a, it's a maintenance of his strict justice. And I think in 1 John, he doesn't tell us, but the only judicial basis of that is if the satisfaction has been provided. The righteousness has been uh, provided for us the curse has been played out on another for us and we now are cleansed before him and forgiven in Christ when we appropriate him by faith. Do you, in thinking about do you have other things you'd like to contribute or I don't know. I, I'm, I'm willing for this to be a discussion. I don't have all answers on it but that's how, how I've thought about it so far. New heavens and a new earth. We both share an interest in that. Yeah. But, uh, I actually was going to ask a follow up question because I know okay. you're going to study Revelation mm -hmm. and part of that. Uh, the scroll, uh -huh. no one is worthy mm -hmm. to open except the Lamb yeah. is worthy. I've often heard that that scroll is uh, symbolic of a covenantal inheritance. No one can seize that scroll and open its uh, seal except the one who has earned the right by shedding uh, his blood uh, and saving multitudes of another nation. He has earned the right to open that scroll. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is a symbol of the covenant of inheritance that he has. That's very helpful. Thank you. Uh, I don't know how to summarize that for the tape, but uh, read Romans five, uh, Revelation 5 and you'll know what we're talking about. Uh, <laughs> that's very helpful. I, I've thought about it some, but that's, that's illuminating because in my opinion, you know what the scroll is by what it does. So what is it? Well, when he opens the seals of the scroll, you know what it is. We don't really think of the scroll as a particular scroll. Some, you know, uh, War, uh, Hendrickson thinks it's the covenant document. I don't have a problem with that, but I do think that in Revelation, often you know what things are by what they do. That's a hermeneutical point. Uh, but I do stress and when I read that passage that John is caught up into a time before the ascension of Christ because no one is found in heaven, earth, or under the earth. So all of creation 
who, who is worthy, as you are pointing out, worthy to open the scroll. See, it's that worthiness. Well, what is the worth? Well, it's the lion from the tribe of Judah, this victorious warrior, you know, lion coming to seize it by force. But then when John sees him, it's a lamb as one slain who has purchased with his own blood the people. That is what gives him the worth. A song breaks forth. Worthy are you, O Lord, the Lamb, too. And then, you see, this is uh, exactly, I think, how to think of Revelation in context with his covenant, that he has purchased the right to open this scroll. And, it, and in, in my opinion, he's inaugurating his messianic rule on earth. See, it's this all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What happens is he, he exercises his judicial rule through these curses and then, of course, gathering in his elect as well. Kathy? Well, the worthiness of, it's not the scroll itself, but it's the worthiness to open this scroll and to inaugurate the, me, the militant messianic program. And again, Psalm 110 would be helpful, along with Psalm 2, because they're both integrated to Revelation. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Well, he's ruling, but he's also advancing his own kingdom in this world. And this is what it's symbolizing. But what's the judicial basis for him being worthy to do that? Is fulfilling the task laid upon him in the covenant of redemption and fulfilling it in history. There's a connection now between the covenant of redemption and history in that he had to fulfill the historical messianic task, which is only really inaugurated with his earthly life, death, and resurrection. It's inaugurating him into the rule now that he exercises the Davidic rule as well in resurrection. Pastor Poundstone pointed out at the break how the Davidic covenant implies resurrection because his son will sit on his throne forever. There's an implication for the heir of that covenant promise of eternal life and therefore resurrection as well. So, boy, we're, we get really rich in our, uh, in the, you see, you get, you get really, this main line's done, you can connect to all sorts of places, Adam. Oh, time's up. Go ahead. Uh, this will be the last time I'm afraid. Yes, the reward. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, First Corinthians fifteen. He became life-giving spirit. And that connects to Romans 1, 4. Was ordained son of God with power through the spirit of holiness. Following Murray's interpretation of his commentary. Well, by Murray on Romans, read Revelation, read Hebrews, read Galatians a lot. Let's see, Genesis, do you want to read Genesis? Can I think of any other covenant documents? Well, let's see. 60, there's 66, so if you you might find them under one cover. <laughs> and, and we didn't even talk about how covenants usually have a document which guide the recipients of the covenant 
to how they can fulfill the terms of the covenant. Here it is. A covenant book. Well, thank you so much, brothers and sisters. It's been a real delight. You know, I'm... You know, I'm